0: Welcome back everyone to another episode of Grow Your Path to Wellness. If this is your first time joining us, my co-host, Amanda, and then a third co-host, Rain, he's with us today, but um, Amanda and I, every week, we host a new wellness guest and we release our new episodes every Sunday. Um, last week, we've all been facing illnesses and things, so we rescheduled last week's guest, Heidi Groose, um, date to be determined. but. If you missed our last released episode, we hosted Josh McKivigan on the topic of, I was kind of um, a mod podge, I think. I was out myself, but he covered um, being a male therapist, working with female clients, as well as um, some tidbits in there about the importance of having adequate supports for men overall regarding their own mental wellness. This week, we welcome back another returning guest uh, with us, Kimberly Anderson, We're gonna be chatting more specifically on the topic of queerness and the Mormon religion. Welcome back, Kimberly. Thank you for joining us, especially from vacation.
1: Thank you um, to both of you. Last time I was here, you were gone and I only met with Amanda. Yes. And I was really really sad about that, but I'm really excited to be here with both of you this morning.
0: Thank you so much for being here again.
2: Yeah, we are super excited to have you back. I almost copped out again because I'm at the tail end of COVID, but we're finally, we're getting through it. So this one, this one was quite a trooper with it. So mm-hmm. um, last time we talked about uh, religious trauma. And so I think uh, spin-tailing in this episode with you about queerness and Mormonism specifically is going to be a good show for sure. So Um, Can you just start off and give a brief intro of who you are and what you do, just for those that didn't get a chance to listen to the other episode?
1: Absolutely. Uh, My name is Kimberly Anderson. I'm an associate marriage and family therapist. um, I'm licensed in California, uh, licensed to practice in Utah, and now I'm licensed to practice in Northern Virginia. Uh, I uh, got my education, I graduated in 2019 from the University of San Francisco. And have been practicing since then in California and in Utah, and I've recently, over the past uh, eight months, I guess, moved to Virginia, and I now practice in Northern Virginia in Falls Church. Before becoming a therapist, for about 30 years, I was a commercial, uh, fine art, and documentary photographer. The last 10 years of that chunk of my life, I was also a university professor teaching photography. The last project I did, the last big documentary project I did was about uh, Mormon moms and their struggle between church and religious dogma and their love for their LGBTQ child and how they resolved and reconciled sometimes that seemingly unreconcilable space of having a faith tradition that they loved and they were part of and often enmeshed in and then finding out that their child's orientation or sexual uh, or gender identity doesn't quite match with what they believed or what they were taught to believe in their religious faith tradition, how they navigated that space. That project took about three years. And in that period of time, my own personal journey was my marriage was ending, a 20-year marriage. I've raised two kids into their 20s. And I was doing the last kind of the tail end of uh, social and physical and legal transition from living previously as a man to then living as a woman authentically. So a lot of transition in my life, this book, this documentary project, we turned the documentary project into an exhibit and a book, that was largely my support system for my own trauma that I was experiencing as I ended my marriage, as my family disowned me, as my children became distant, as I uh, moved out of my faith tradition, as I officially resigned from Mormonism, and then kind of leaving my previous career as a photographer and a professor, moving into becoming a student of mental health, and then graduating and starting to work. So this project really was kind of a bridge from being a photographer and a professor into being a therapist now. Uh, I've worked with um, a couple different agencies in California. I work with Center for Discovery as a primary therapist and traveling therapist for eating disorders and Behavior health. I moved to Salt Lake City and worked for a year, just over a year, with Flourish Therapy. And I actually still have clients from Flourish. Just a few are that are left. Flourish Therapy is a nonprofit in Salt Lake. And we work uh, exclusively with LGBTQ clients and their families. Uh, And then moving to Virginia now, working um, with a broader variety of clients. Um, uh, Lots and lots of couples work. The LGBTQ people are finding me. Uh, I have a lot of trans youth, a lot of minors that their parents have kind of found me through a a, a common friendship referrals i suppose Uh, and then um, finding uh, that i'm working with military department of defense government workers that i had never worked with before and ironically uh, also working with a larger population of jewish clients that i'd never worked with before and finding that some of the current things i'm learning uh, with friends um, personal acquaintances that are jewish or were formerly jewish And how that is informing the work that I'm doing with my Jewish clients and how my Mormon background also influences how I'm working with my current Jewish clients. So it's been a really rich kind of a transition within transition within transition and multiple layers of transition. And I use the word transition and I kind of go slash trauma. Because often major life transitions are traumatic events.
0: For sure. And you use the word that I was going to use was rich. I'm like, holy cow. And I didn't get the, I mean, from where I wasn't uh, able to be present when you guys recorded initially, I didn't get your, to listen to your background, the whole, like your story. So thank you for sharing that. And so many different, you know, populations and then not just those, you know, that are, we don't just work with clients that are like ourselves and I'm sure that oh, she's taking a step away. Um, <clears throat> like I said, it was a rich experience. Can you sh- can you share a little? In, in, this isn't, you know, we tell everybody you only share what people are comfortable sharing here. But that the traumatic piece of that, and it doesn't have to be detailed, but the aspects for you that were like, like, ow, oh, this is this is big. I might be grieving some changes or things on your your own journey
1: and then we'll get into. Sure, thank you um, for asking uh, and allowing me to set a boundary. I appreciate that. I think what's important to understand, um, it was important for me to understand the nature of trauma. And as I'm in school, we had an entire semester that we studied trauma, a class dedicated only to that. As I learned, and the body keeps the score was our text, one of our textbooks, by the way, by Bessel van der Kolk, who's you know some people like him, some people don't. I personally enjoy his um, his material. Mm-hmm. As I learned what trauma is, as I learned what intergenerational trauma is, as I learned what uh, big T and little T trauma is, I just kind of mm-hmm. call it trauma. I don't try to big T or little T trauma anymore. But as I learned what trauma was, I was really forced to be, I was confronted with the reality of my life. And I'm going, well, that's a point of trauma. That's a point of trauma. That is a point of trauma that I never really understood as a point of trauma, but actually is much more uh, uh, impactful to me than I'd ever considered it. And then I was introduced to the the idea of a trauma timeline. So I created my own and I sat back and I looked at this thing and i holy cow, how could you not be affected by these various things? Starting from my adoption, being placed for adoption, and all the things that come with that. Moving into a family that's recoiling from the death of a daughter, and they they adopted me because of the death of this child. Growing up within a a Mormon framework, a high-demand religion, um, what that means, my self-awareness as a trans and queer person And what that really tumultuous, crazy, unknown journey is, void of language, void of space, void of community or context, moving into really harsh gendered, uh, stereotypically gendered roles within religious space, navigating dating, navigating school, navigating puberty, um, navigating an awareness of who I was and trying to reconcile that within myself with my religious faith tradition. All of this is trauma even before I got married. Yeah. And then I get married and now I'm committed to a 20-year process of being married to this uh, woman. We had two children. Um, lots of trauma in that 20-year marriage. I did come out to my wife prior to becoming married. So she knew about my gender identity stuff before we got married. So there's always this, this under, our foundation for our marriage was a foundation of eggshells. Yes. And knowing okay. about trauma now in interpersonal dynamics and marriage relational dynamics, that's probably the worst place to start. Because everything trickled down to, oh, crap, we have this thing that we're dancing around. And then divorcing is a a major life transition and trauma. Being rejected by my parents triggered all kinds of things in the same way that being rejected by my birth mother brought up. Being rejected by my wife, the third most important woman in my life, goes back to being rejected, rejected, rejected. So I have this long history of being rejected that hurts then I'm rejected by my siblings, rejected by my uh, children, rejected by my faith community, and ultimately rejected by my God, which kind of speaks to this journey of today, the topic for today of queer space within Mormonism. So that's kind of my, that's my trauma timeline that I understood, really for the first time in graduate school, to become a therapist, to work with specifically the queer kids within Mormonism so I had to go through through my own awareness and healing journey before I could do that for the clients I was going to work with
2: and even interwoven in you know oftentimes grief is traumatic as well but I just heard grief grief grief, grief loss, grief grief and what a huge pressure that is to put on a kid that when you shared about you were the Almost, uh, this isn't the word you use, but it almost felt like the replacement child for the child they lost. What a huge pressure that is
1: alone. I'm the consolation prize. Yeah. How could my mother, how could my adoptive mother not think of the child she lost every time she sees me? I was adopted at 10 weeks of age. Right. In that prime bonding time, attachment time, where she's still grieving. It has to be on some level rejecting the nature of me at the same time being required to raise and nurture me. I need that attachment from the new mom-child dynamic more than ever. And it's fun to watch you, Amanda, in this podcast doing the thing that I'm speaking of. I didn't have this moment with my adopted mom. I did have those moments with my birth mom. I was given up for adoption after five weeks of age. So I had five weeks of bonding with birth mom, additional to the nine months of bonding with birth mom, torn away from that bond, huge moment of trauma, needs are unmet four or five more weeks, placed into a home where uh, at least the individuals in the home were stable and consistent, but the love that I was looking for, the attachment that I was looking for as an infant certainly wasn't there. And that manifests itself uh, years later. My dad wrote a poem called The Boy Who Liked to Cry. Apparently, I cried so much that it became a a recurring theme to the point where my father wrote a poem about it. Certainly, he had no idea about the trauma background, the trauma uh, framework, the scaffolding of loss and grief and loss and grief that I had no idea how to process because I was five weeks, ten weeks, one year, two years old. And they would not have had any kind of uh, insight into their own process to be able to put those all those things together. So looking back on this, I kind of am making sense of my own life full of trauma grief. So, Manny, you're exactly right. My life is a, a life of grief and trauma.
0: And it's like I picture, you know, your dad not have you know, not had grasping or knowing that the trauma history and biology and development and the things that in the context in our space right now, we know those things. But it's like. You were, that's how babies, that's the only way they know to get their needs met. So it was like, uh, and and it was just, you were viewed at the time, the boy that, all you did was cry, those
1: unmet needs. And it's a little bittersweet because my father passed away uh, at the end of November um, and I was not informed of his illness. I was not informed of his passing. And I was only informed of his funeral the night before the funeral uh, by my daughter. She didn't know if I'd been reached out to or not. So there's a lot of things just coming up in this moment of recording and having the conversation right now um, that, you know, informs more of that loss and grief and rejection.
2: And thank you. I really appreciate you sharing the personal journey because I think we talked about it in the last podcast we recorded is that oftentimes people don't realize, yes, we're very professional. We have boundaries. That we maintain we have lots of training but oftentimes we end up doing the work we do and we end up pivoting and morphing and developing into other areas that we never thought we would be doing like you said you never thought you'd be working with the jewish community i never thought i'd be working with some of the people that i am and it's all because of my life experiences that that gave me more passion and um buy into that community and really wanting to serve them and that's what you're sharing here to your point
1: i never thought i was going to be a therapist Yep. yep. <laughs> I, I have a I, this is like my third career at age 48. I enrolled in school to become I'm 53 now. So I'm at the very beginning of the last 30 years of my life being a therapist. Good, so,
0: can, I, okay. can I ask, was well, your
2: birth um your birth mother was she were you in, already in the Mormon community with her or did you get adopted into the Mormon
1: community? I was told that she was Mormon. And that she was specifically looking for a mormon family to adopt me now if that is folklore if that is a happy tale uh if that is something that was designed to be told to me later to ease my uh acceptance of my new family i really truly have no way of knowing that but that's the story that i was told and
0: so the adoptive family you were told that and then your adoptive family was obviously orthodox, mormon
1: yeah, very orthodox mormon yeah.
0: okay if we Coming into the space of our topic today, and yes, a million times over, thank you for sharing that and and your vulnerability here and then with our listeners as well. Um, But getting into that space and uh, the queer space and within the Mormon religion, what I know without having, you know, our topics, is there something very specific, whether it is, you know, things that like, from your own experience that you were really, you know, comfortable sharing, or just what does, my brain wants to ask, what does the queer space in Mormonism look like, but I want to say, like, there, there is none. It's not, it's not something that's supposed to, you know, be present, be acted on, be, you know, authentic, be an authentic part of people within that religion.
1: So, I, I'm I'm hearing a question given as a statement. And I'm assuming the question is, what is the, I mean, you did ask it, I guess, what does the queer space in Mormonism look like? It can be very helpful for people to understand what does Mormonism look like, and then be able to say for themselves or see for themselves what the queer space looks like. In Mormonism, it is a very strict male-female gender binary. And in Mormonism, we believe that our souls are eternal, I'm sorry, our souls were born of a god who had uh, gave birth conceived of our soul in a relationship of husband and wife in the pre-mortal existence so there is a god and the wife of god conceive spiritual children that are either male or female those spiritual children get sent down to earth to live out their life and if they are lucky enough and blessed enough to encounter mormonism or even blessed enough based on actions they did in a pre-mortal existence to be born into a Mormon family, then they can go through certain steps as a Mormon, marry an individual with the gender or the sex opposite to them in a heterosexual cisgender marriage, have children, uh, be active members of the Mormon church, and then die, and then go to heaven. And then their spouse will go to heaven with them, and then they will become gods later on creating spirit children to populate further worlds. That's the framework of Mormonism that I was raised with. So everything is based on male, female, binary, cisgender, heterosexual identities. So in this earthly world, which is a temporal world, it's not a spiritual world. We have things like cancer. We have things like cleft palates. We have things like uh, COVID. We have the ailments of the temporal existence. And within the scope of Mormonism, LGBTQ identities are looked at as a temporal condition that in the afterworld will be fixed. So my queer identity, my trans identity will be fixed when I die.
0: It's like a defect, something something that needs to be fixed, something that is inherently
1: wrong Not with me. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, in Mormonism, and my friend Blair Osler, who is an author, she wrote a wonderful book about queerness and Mormonism. Uh, she equates this to a spiritual genocide of queer and trans people, that our identities, our existence as queer and trans people in the afterlife, will be erased. So this whole segment of the population here on Earth will no longer be present in the afterlife in heaven or the celestial kingdom. We have a very complicated hierarchy of places you go to once you die, and in the highest of the highest kingdom, everything is normal, everything is cisgender. Everything is heterosexual and everything is an eternal progression of making spiritual babies to come down to new worlds to act out their life and return back to to heaven to be joined in an eternal bond of marriage where they can create more babies and create and populate more planets moving forward. So so idea, I, oh' go ahead Amanda
2: yeah I just I just wanna um thank you for sharing that because I think even when we met the first time I didn't we didn't even get that deep with it so that's really interesting to know I have a question and then I also have a statement so I guess I'll say the statement first is that even though this is titled and we're talking about queerness and mormonism I think it can definitely be applied to other very strict religions like Catholicism Christianity things like that As, um, we yeah some yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but my question then is if those are things of the temporal world, do they, are they not worthy of being addressed in this world then or do they need to be ignored or they need to be fixed? What is the approach then?
1: Well, so that's the that's the journey that the wrestling match that the church is being confronted with currently in the past, when I grew up, I was born in 1968, so I grew up in an era where uh, homosexuality was a crime. Being, tr- being cross-dressing was a crime. Being trans was, was certainly off most people's radar. So that type of person was actually supposed to be fixed. So conversion therapy, either formal or informal, was a huge part of many queer LGBT Mormons' uh, experience growing up. I personally know people who had electroshock therapy administered to them while they were students at Brigham Young University, while uh, the people that are going to be the prophet of the church were the president of BYU. So they uh, uh, back in the day, there were newspaper uh, want ads or classifieds placed to try to ensnare or entrap gay Mormon men at BYU. And when they were found out, they were told they had to either change they would be expelled. And there was a huge rash of suicides, deaths by suicide at Brigham Young University during this period of life, or this period of time, rather, when they were discovered uh, and trapped, really, and uh, outed to their ecclesiastical leaders and then either had to be kicked out or they had to be cured by conversion therapy. Uh, A lot of gay men uh, died by suicide. They made that choice. They couldn't reconcile those two things. Uh, many trans people just bury themselves in the closet. Uh, I was a person who thought that and was told that over the years, being married would cure everything. Being married would fix whatever gender or sexuality incongruencies you would have. Just find the right girl and get married and settle down and it, all, it will all work out. I know dozens if not hundreds of Mormon uh, people who are now divorced or not divorced who were given that advice. M- married into what we call a mixed orientation marriage, where one of the spouses is gay and one of the spouses is straight. I also consider a cisgender and a transgender marriage also mixed orientation marriage. Uh, sometimes the mixed orientation marriage was both sexuality and gender identity, as it, as it was in the case of me. I've always identified as a woman since about the age of oh five six. I understood transgender identities in my teens as I became more... Uh, uh, exposed to media and information. So my journey of understanding who I was as a trans woman and being attracted to women, so I'm a transgender woman as far as my gender identity is concerned, and then I'm a lesbian as uh, my sexual attraction is concerned. Pretty binary lesbian actually. I've had to deconstruct that and reconstruct that several times over the past, you know, 20 20 years, 30 years. And more recently, uh, having a really committed, loving relationship with another woman right now. It's been really beautiful. Um, And then deconstructing some of my partner's um, sexual identity as well as my own as we navigate our new relationship has been really, really powerful.
2: When you said um, just marry, just marry the straight to straight or marry, you know, just get in that relationship and it all work out the thing that came to my mind was oh you're left-handed just keep practicing just keep using your right use your right use your right use your right and eventually you'll be right-handed just keep using it and it's just for people that are still trying to wrap their head around the concept of sexual or gender identity it's it's like that it's like if, if you were being forced to use your other hand and eventually it would magically work
1: or taste things with your fingers or whatever you want yeah whatever metaphor the right-handed left-handed thing is a really good analogy because for decades and probably thousands of years left-handedness was a trait that was that was being or had been tried to been uh worked out of the population lots and lots of left-handed people were forced to be right-handed it stinks for them and that's uh, as much of an integral part of who they are as being queer or trans is to many uh, queer people.
2: Now, Kimberly, compared to um, when you were growing up in the Mormon church, and I know you're, you've left the church now, but I'm sure you still have some connections or understandings or things like that. Is there any difference in what queerness looks like in Mormonism now versus when you were being raised?
1: So thanks for bringing that back. That's the hello ADHD. We have to travel the circular conversational pattern. Uh, So then now as media, uh, exposure to media, exposure to communication, certainly the internet, a lot of research has happened in the past 30, 40 years, what the church is being confronted with is that homosexuality is a natural occurrence, biologically, culturally, emotionally, sexually, and transgender people are a natural variation of a, a gendered experience in this world. As well as agenderism a, a or a non-gender, having, experiencing a feeling of be, not being a gender or feeling of an experience of not having any sexuality at all, as well as scientific research and the really brutal confrontation of intersex people. This is a real population that has a medical diagnosis that we can pin in a map that it's hard for a religious framework to just brush under the rug. You know, this is millions of people as well as millions of trans and millions of queer people. So the church now is making an attempt to carve out a space for acceptance, tolerance, understanding, and kindness for gay people and for trans people with the subtext of, we know better, you'll be fixed later. Just don't, you can be gay, just don't act on,
0: right yeah. i was gonna say Please. not to cut you off kim really but i was like i have a feeling it's like yeah we accept it but you're we still love you but and i'm but like, know that you're going to hell right 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 you're still going to yeah. hell or like,
1: yeah. you're going to be fixed in order to go to heaven
2: you know what's interesting is that um as we expanded into our new space um i sent out you know letters networking and one of the places that i networked with was all the local churches because there's a bunch of big ones right around us and i'm like how do I know if they're affirming or not? Search on their website. You know, some churches are just inherently affirming. They have gay pastors or queer pastors or whatever it is, but otherwise you just don't know, right? Unless you know someone that goes or whatever it is. You okay? You bumped your head on my head. Hold my thought. (laughs) okay.
1: Okay, that squeal, that crying, I resonate with that very strongly, both as a parent and as a child who undoubtedly screamed like that a lot.
2: So I sent out letters to all these churches and said, hey, we're an LGBTQ plus affirming practice, you know, BIPOC affirm. all these things, right? Anti-oppressive informed. Uh, and nah, I got no responses from any of the churches. And I actually got a return to sender with it opened and resealed from one of the churches.
1: Wow. Yeah. So, so, did you,
0: uh,
1: Amanda, did we talk about the riddle scale in the original podcast that you and I did? The riddle the scale? Uh-uh. Riddle scale? Okay, so you both may want to look this up. I'm not sure if Kelsey is aware of this or not, the Riddle Scale. I, when I discovered the Riddle Scale, um, it's, it was a, it's a scale developed by a woman psychologist, I believe in the 70s, and this is a scale of, uh, it's called the Riddle Scale of, of Homosexuality. Basically, it is a scale of acceptability, tolerance, celebration, uh, or, or various ways that we can uh, look at a place, a lens or a framework over an individual or an organization, and understand how affirming they truly are or how non-affirming they truly are. And so I encourage my clients to take a look at the riddle scale and you can Google this and and find lots of results, but I encourage them to look at the riddle scale and put that lens on top of any of their friends, any of their family, any of the institutions that they work with, and certainly over the top of any religious organizations that they're either involved with or considering to become involved with. Do you know the language that they use? acceptance is actually a neutral feeling it's not a pl- it's not a positive feeling unless you're celebrating and promoting you are still neutral or below tolerance is actually below neutral because tolerance indicates that you have a position of superiority and you're making space for someone that you wouldn't normally make space for Yeah, we'll
2: deal with you like if you want to show up okay fine we'll figure it out but like we'd rather
0: not it sounds good for us to say all are welcome here and in, in, in things and I, so for our timeline here Kimberly do you feel like the church went from rejecting those that identify you know with LGBTQ plus community to pers- uh, projecting themselves as being at the neutral acceptance level at this point?
1: So this is where it gets really nuanced and complex and many Mormon queer people struggle with this externally the church is spending millions of dollars on uh hey we love gay people we have websites dedicated to it we have uh, part of our organization is devoted to giving money to gay organizations and i know this is true because i was the vice president of one of those organizations that took money from the church when we took money from the church i resigned vocally and loudly and wrote not an bad about it in the Salt Lake tribune so there's this external presentation of hey, we love everyone, everyone's welcome, for gay uh, and bisexual people. For trans people, there's still the space of, we don't know, we don't understand, we don't get it, and we'd like you to be tolerant and loving and accepting. So that's the external message that the church is pushing out. Internally, doctrinally, nothing has changed. So now people get to decide, in the church well nothing's really changed doctrinally i can still hate these people that's okay i can still be bigoted and homophobic and transphobic and that's okay because really nothing's changed doctrinally whereas if you're in that space as an ally or as a queer as a queer person or as someone from the outside looking in you can say oh but they're making all these overtures towards making me feel loved they're giving me language uh that's uh making me know that i'm included and I believe Nelson Mandela said, I'd rather starve than uh, dine on the scraps uh, dropped off the table of, of whomever. And mm-hmm. that's what it feels like the Mormon church is doing is giving queer people table scraps. Yes. While the rest they, of Mormonism is eating filet mignon and drinking, you know, fine drinks, not wine, drinking the best of sparkling water that they can afford.
0: And if for those that are looking to enter the religion, if they're looking for you know a religion or a faith that you know, would bring them a sense of peace or, you know, connection or all of those things that we turn to, whatever our belief systems are, it probably looks really good. And is there like a, a, like a honeymoon phase or something for those that are new to come into the church? Like, are they still treated like you're accepted here, you know, because that's what they promote? And then is there a bait and switch at some point? Absol- do you start to-
1: absolutely, yeah, because the gay person, the trans person that would convert into Mormonism, they will be looked at as a rock star. Oh, you found your way into the truth. You're making your way into the kingdom of God. You found the everlasting gospel, good for you. And they will be you know, revered and celebrated. And, and, and often they attain a celebrity status. And many people within Mormonism that have decided to become publicly either gay or trans and stay within Mormonism, those people write books. They have podcasts, they're asked to speak they're put on pedestals, they're used officially on Mormon church platforms as, here's a success story, here's a success story. Over the years, what has happened, and this is actually, I know people that have done this, these people that have come out as gay or trans stayed in the church and been used as propaganda for the Mormon church. Over the years, they've decided, oh, actually, you know what? You know what? I'm actually seeing things a lot differently now, and uh i'm not so concerned with being celibate and committed to mormonism i'd rather live my life for myself and find a partner or express my true gender identity and i'm going to ask the church slash demand the church to pull my name and my story off of the church's website so now the church is left really with a skeleton of acceptance and zero supporting uh, evidence as far as success stories because all those people said no never mind kind of done with that so they're really struggling in turn, that leaves active, believing Mormons who are also LGBTQ and their allies and families also struggling with, oh, crap, there's really nothing here for us. It's almost a case of the emperor's new clothes. We speak a flowery, perfume scented language, but when we get right down to it, it's just junk. It's just nothing. It's, vac- it's vacuous. It's like the shiny
0: little distraction. Look at this. Look at
2: this. But the undertow of it all and the, the true build of it all is non-acceptance.
1: Well, I think about like a bass lure. Bass lures often have a big shiny floppy thing on it and as it's going through the water it spins around. Oh, this is pretty. And if you're a bass swimming around, you're hungry and you're like <gasps> chomp and you bite that bite down on that lure thinking, oh, I'm going to get the wonderful golden shiny flashy thing. And then you're bitten down onto a hook, and you're reeled in to a system that is to your detriment, often to your death, and it's not at your control.
2: Which is uh, so another for, or, for oh, somebody looking for love, and connection, and acceptance. He's lost, trying to find their way, who has probably dealt with a timeline similar to yours, or that you know, very uniquely their own, but of grief and trauma.
0: Yeah.
1: Not only looking for, but maybe desperate for it. Another tool or another framework I like to use with the people that I'm uh, working with, either with cult recovery, high demand religion recovery, LGBTQ space within any religious space, or within not a religious space, is this idea of gen- I'm sorry, identity formation. The idea of identity formation for the individual. And the model that I like to look at it with the template or the framework, I like to look at it through the lens of a researcher named James Marcia, the psychologist who has four different quadrants of identity formation and the different ways that we form our identity. And when I share this with my clients, uh, explain to them what these terms mean, explain to them what this identity formation path can look like, they're really confronted with the idea that they may have never had a chance to form their own identity. They may have never been able to understand that the idea of forming their own identity was even a possibility. They may be confronted with the idea that they wanted to form their own identity and their, that desire was squashed or stolen from them, or they were trapped into a life that they really would never have chosen. And then uh, we can go through different stages of someone's life and say, well, in this part of your life, you were experiencing this identity development phase. This part of your life, you were having this identity development phase. And then ultimately, when they're working with me as their therapist, hopefully we're working into a place of identity uh, uh, achievement where they're able to create their own identity on their own terms, in their own way, in their own time frame. As you uh, all three of us know, working as a therapist, we can never tell people what they have to do, what they should do, what they need to do. We can never tell them that. We only provide them what they could do. Or ask them to challenge the idea of what they've been doing. Has it been helpful for you? Has it been beneficial for you? Has this made your life better? Well, if it hasn't, let's talk about that in ways that it hasn't worked. Have we considered this road or this road or this road? Here are different things that we can look at. Maybe if this thing that you've been doing isn't really serving you that well, maybe we can consider some other things. Which of these do you think you'd like to approach and consider and experiment with? If it's none of those, and you want to go back to step A, that's your journey. And I had have to support you in that and help you develop schools and skills and techniques and tools to deal with this place where you were, that wasn't really working, that you've explored, you've considered other spaces, and you're now returning back to your original space. This is going to be a conflict for you. How can I support you as your therapist? Being culturally informed, being culturally humble being culturally curious if you don't know those cultures or those frameworks is really the job of the therapist and not the job of the client to teach the therapist. So when you can come into those communities with a framework of understanding uh, and humility, you can really uh, be very effective in helping that client both feel seen and feel and actually being helped. And I've gotten this
0: like almost a feeling because I get I'm in a very like uh I don't know if you call it part of the Bible belt or whatever you want to call it where I'm located. And every now and then, I'll get on psychology today and, and see if any new therapists in the area have popped up and that I can try to connect with, network with. And I've only gotten I've only made connections with one and one faith-based, like very explicitly faith faith-based, faith-based clinician and, and her husband and and, you know, we have great conversation and, you know, just talking with one another as, as clinicians. And, but otherwise, like, I similar to like Amanda's experience, if I reach out, um, usually I get no response, nothing, none. Um, and I, I never mailed networking letters to churches. Or so rejection that one, not- or yeah, I haven't gotten any explicit like replies where they're like, yeah, that's not, you know, the things that your practice aligns with are, things that, you know, blah, 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 like, but I say all that to say is like, I get a lot of people that come to me that are, feel like in that deconstructing phase and reforming, you know, and achieving their present identity. I feel like that's put on a binary either, and many religions make it feel that way, either you're in or you're out.
1: It's an, it's, an, it's a, uh, yeah, um, insider outsider dynamic that can be very isolating I mean, or very inclusive. It's really interesting that there's a lot of research about this with suicidality, that religion is a protective factor and many religious organizations will cite this research that, oh, if you're a member of this faith community, it's actually a protective factor against suicidal ideation, both active or passive. But when the research is really teased out, we can look at the inclusivity as having a binary as well. Within this framework of inclusivity, are you really uh, an insider or are you an outsider? Within this understanding of, yes, I'm part of your faith tradition, But is your faith tradition truly affirming or is it truly rejecting? So it does me no good. In fact, it's deleterious. It's negative if I'm part of your system that accepts. I feel part of your religious framework. I'm into it. Either I was born into it or I joined it. But within that belonging, there's a subtext or a doctrinal framework that excludes me. So now not only is there an insider-outsider dynamic that's explicit, but there's also an internal insider-outsider dynamic that the, the individual wrestles with continually.
2: And, yeah, you, another protective factor is um, a support system, family or friends. Right. But if it's not a safe support system, if it's not a safe place of connection or um, if it's not a safe religion, that exits that it out. But, yeah. I love how I love how people use research to their benefit.
1: <laughs> That's a logical fallacy called cherry picking.
2: Mm-hmm. And you know, it's interesting, Kelsey, I, uh, I wonder now that you said, you know, we were talking about these letters more, I wonder if I would have not included that little line, you know, we're an LGBTQ affirming practice, what responses I would have gotten.
1: Send them out again.
0: Yeah. So check out my website, because uh, like I have right on my home page, very large, very, very, like just this past week, you know, I've gotten, i am um, onboarded quite a few new clients. I had some drop off and um, two out of the three are trans
1: mm, good, in the good,
0: community good. that my office is located in. And um, yeah, it's, it's very intriguing to me and and you see in the psychology today profiles, and I tell, you know, individuals like I get a lot, even on TikTok or just in general, you know, how do I find somebody that's affirming? And but I like how psychology today you could list like if you know you're oh, the words are escaping my mouth right now, but you can pick if you're a certain faith or you know, align with that. And then you can also list the populations that you are allied with. And I'll see one say Christian or whatever. And then the populations allied with or not. Like there, I don't see any in my community where it says, you know, I'm a Christian based therapist, but I'm also allied with the bisexual community, the kink community, the- um,
1: poly, yeah.
0: poly, you know, sex workers, uh, things like that. That whole section is black. Yeah, interesting. It's, and it hurts me because, and I want, and I'm like, it makes sense as to why you know, I have such a high demand and in, in our area, because you go to psychology today and it's, uh, I've had clients look at me and say, I've never met anybody like you in this area. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Right. It's like my, in, in my instinctual is, I'm sorry.
1: And we can't apologize for the entire therapy. Right. Role, right. We can only just be accountable for our own actions. It's so
2: intriguing too, because it's, it's almost to me like the opioid epidemic, right? It's like, well, that can't happen here can't happen in this type of neighborhood those people can't exist here it's like nobody is immune to anything right we are very diverse people and we are going to be sprinkled in all the nooks and crannies of the world regardless of how you feel about it so kimberly i know we're uh running short on time for all of us my little nuggets falling asleep in my arms Mm. Uh As we wrap up, is there any um, point for queerness and Mormonism or queerness in general, or anything that you wanted to get out to the community before um, we wrap up here?
1: Oh gosh, that's such a I mean, that's another hour right of resourcing and uh, affirming and validating. Uh, I would just say this, that if you feel that you're not seen where you're at, if you feel that you're not safe where you're at, When you're ready, begin your journey of finding places where you are seen and where you are safe. And usually I, I like to make the safety part the primary consideration, because as we know, there are a lot of minors who are queer or trans who are in a high demand religious system where if they came out openly, that would not be safe. They may be ready. They may be like, yeah, let's go. And if they do, that puts their safety at risk lots and lots of homeless youth in salt lake city in fact i believe the last official count which was probably about a decade ago put it at uh between 40 and 60 percent of homeless youth in salt lake city were lgbtq and came from religious or mormon households so please if you're queer or trans and you're ready to begin this journey um, take serious stock take a serious uh, assessment of safety before you come out. Also know this, that when you're ready, you have community that's ready and waiting for you. Uh, We, and I include myself in this because I am a member of the community, I was you at one point. We are ready to embrace you and to hold you and to listen to your your challenges and your problems. Uh, We can provide resourcing uh, that we've either had to find or we've created specifically to help you on your journey so there are people out there that are ready and willing and able to help you along the way both queer and straight uh community members and allies
2: i so appreciate you saying that point of safety because like we know that's the utmost you know that has to be first um and i don't want to put this on you but just if you had any for a queer transgender LGBTQ plus youth that's looking for that connection or that safety or the next step of acceptance or community is there a certain direction you send them first is there a certain place you recommend they go especially being a minor it's difficult when you're still with your parents
1: right so that's part of the challenge is that each consideration kind of has with it a, a unique way to find resourcing or unique resources that would be most helpful for them. Because I know within the Mormon community, there's a huge resource available. Within the Jehovah's Witness community, there's a small resource available. Within the Jewish community, there's a resource available. Within the Reformed LDS or the Community of Christ community, there's a resource there. Each, it seems like every uh, evangelical community has a resource. If you've been a, a victim of conversion therapy, there's a resource there for you as well. Uh, I'm on the board of directors of a group called Conversion Therapy Survivors, and that's ctsurvivors.org. Uh, and we do trauma uh, work with and education and community building for those survivors of conversion therapy, regardless of the, uh, religious denomination or void of one. Um, boy, what resourcing would I put out? I would just, uh, for your, if you're trans, you can go to Gender Spectrum, you can go to tser.org. Uh, if you're queer, there's the uh, HRC is powerful, Trevor Project is powerful, um, and I'm just rattling through these quickly. Um, I would say reach out to your local LGBTQ Center because they will probably have the b- boots on the ground kind of resourcing that I would have no idea of depending on where if they're you're from Dubuque or Issaquah, Washington or Boston or Tampa Bay. I, I don't know what resources are even local to Uh, kind of where I live because I'm still new there so if you are in that community of people that's looking for help regardless of your situation do some googling for uh, resourcing in your area LGBTQ center uh, Washington DC LGBTQ center Sarasota Florida Uh, You know whatever it might happen to be and find your resourcing that way I, I you know I can't it's been possible to know all the resources and i'm actually really impressed when i do kind of scratch the surface and find resourcing how deep uh it really can be and it is right now for queer kids and adults too well thank you we appreciate
2: that and i understand how it's hard to give one resource for anyone but even if you're in that small. Um, <laughs> the only word that's coming to mind right now is Podunk, but like, you know, very small Appalachian
1: oh, town. Yeah,
2: You know, there is some bigger resource within your state. At least it might be further away, but they all have virtual community at this point. So, yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, podunk, usually I can speak to that. I'm very, 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 very rural and, you know, I Most of our LGBTQ plus resources that I have found to send people are at least an hour away. But with the growth of telehealth, that's been helpful. And obviously with social media, we always say be very careful, you know, do your due diligence. But a lot of my youth have found such an amazing supportive community that nobody really needs to know that they're engaging with or consuming content from as far as. You know, all three of us are creators on TikTok and and, and Instagram and things like that. So, but find, you know, vet your sources and the people that you are consuming content from. But my youth social media has been so powerful as a resource as well.
1: Can I take a picture of the screen for my uh, Instagram?
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Okay, cool. (laughs) Oh, wait, i got to flip this around here. Yes, smile. Okay, we'll do another one of baby's face obliterated. No, 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 I don't wanna show baby because the baby's a minor, <laughs> there we go. Yes, thank you. I just don't wanna put a, a minor's p- picture on my page without consent from the minor. <laughs> um, anything else? I think
2: that's it. Thank you again for joining us, Kimberly. You are always welcome back. Thank we you. We so appreciate you being here. Um, to all of our listeners, please remember to comment, subscribe, comment. Um, any questions you have for Kimberly, we can send them her way for any answers. Um, you can find her on TikTok at. I haven't. I've have been so lost on TikTok. I don't even know names anymore. Since I became a mom, I'm just not on there as much. So is it still at underscore Kimberly Anderson or
1: no? It's Kimberly dot dot Anderson.
2: Kimberly dot dot Anderson. Okay great and then uh next week kelsey if you can help me out who are we hosting next week
0: yeah next week we have um a a fellow creator they're kind of a consumer of mental health services and they are going to be joining us it's chris seam um they're going to be joining us and we're going to be talking um all about how like the positives and like crisis stabilization as far as hospitalization for your mental health goes and kind of destigmatizing reaching out for that type of um, emergency
1: support. Awesome. That sounds fabulous.
0: Well, until next week, thanks, everyone. Bye. Take care. Bye.